You know, there's a story that some believe uh, to be true, others say it's folklore. Um, it's about a Jewish carpenter. And the story goes that uh, the Jewish carpenter was uh, in need of some money, and so um, he agreed to make uh, crosses for the Roman government. He and his son, his son was 10 years old, uh, had been doing that for a while, and one day his son came, came running into the shop and was quite distraught, and his dad said, what's wrong, son? And he said, Dad, you know that, that man, Jesus, that had come by a few months back? I just saw him being crucified. And Dad was a little overwhelmed. They were Jews, and so they had believed in Jesus. They thought Jesus truly was the Messiah, and his heart was broken, and broken seeing his son's heart just so, so overwhelmed with emotion. And, and he said, well, but Dad, there, there's, there's something else. That, that cross... That cross that he was being crucified on, that, that was one of the crosses that was one of the crosses that we had made. Uh, dad said, oh, son, he said, there's, there's lots of uh, people that make crosses for the Roman government. I'm sure that wasn't one of our crosses. The son said, no, dad. He said, see, a couple months ago when we were making one of those crosses, he said, I was so proud of our handiwork that I, I scribbled my name on, on that cross as, as like an artist would do, a, a good piece of art. And he said, today, as I saw Jesus nailed to that cross, and then I heard it thud into the ground, he said, I saw at the base of the cross my name. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And at the foot of the cross, each and every one of our names has been stamped to it. Because Jesus has paid the price for our sins. Last week, we began this new series called Jesus Is, and this series is going to take us through Easter. We're going to look at what God's Word tells us of who Jesus is, and we're going to study that out, and we're going to look at the different things. You can get into Scripture, and you can see that Jesus was called all kinds of different things. He was called a good teacher by some. He was called a prophet by some. He was was called a a miracle worker and a healer, but he was also called what? He was called a, a blasphemer. He was called demon-possessed, who was called a liar, he was called evil. So who is he? What is he? Why is he? Jesus is question mark, right? In some sense, I think we have to first understand who Jesus was before we can truly understand who Jesus is. Now, I years ago accepted this word to be true and without error. I accepted God's word to be inspired by God, written by mankind, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I know that's not the case for everyone. And uh, there are folks in our world that don't believe this to be true. Some of you may not even believe this to be true. And so uh, instead of diving directly into God's word first, I want to dive into what history says about who Jesus was. To give you a little history lesson that uh, tells us not by God's word, but instead by the history books by archaeological evidence uh, about who Jesus was. You know, until recent history, um, the idea of who Jesus was was never questioned. Like the existence of Jesus was never questioned until recently. Now, you look back and you hear first century Roman historian Tacitus mention the followers of Jesus Christ. Suetonius, who was of turn of the first century, secretary of the government archives of the Emperor Hadrid, referenced Jesus in his writings. You know, no other historical figure has had quite the, the changing uh, ability on culture and world. Take the Western dating system. 
You know, we say BC, which stands for before Christ. If you're politically correct, you may say now BCE, which stands before, before the common era. But either way, both of those dating systems start with the birth of Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus was not something that a bunch of people made up as some sort of political, with some sort of political agenda. Historically, at bare minimum, Jesus was the illegitimate child of Mary, um, who grew up and gained quite a following because of his miraculous, or maybe as some would say, magical abilities to heal people. And he made enough people happy and enough people angry um, to, well, to have himself killed. Actually, that historian Tacitus recorded that he suffered the extreme penalty. The extreme penalty was the death by the Roman crucifixion, right, one of the gruesome, most gruesome forms of capital punishment that anybody could ever go through. Now, did he rise from the grave? Some say there's no historical evidence to that. I would argue uh, the, the opposite way, even just simply the fact that he had 11 men who had walked with him and followed him, of 10 of those 11 that uh, had walked and followed with him that went to their grave actually as martyrs for the cause. Now, think about this for a second. You've been walking with a guy, he's telling you that he's going to die and rise again, and then he dies and he stays dead, but you just decide, you know what, I'm going to keep telling people that he rose, and I'm going to go to my deathbed saying that. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I think there's plenty of historical evidence to who Jesus was. I think it's important for us to understand the historicity of Scripture and the historicity of Jesus. Now, let's, let me talk a little bit about God's Word, right? You know, the 27 books that make up the New Testament, the last 27 books in your Bible, you know that there are 5,600 original manuscripts of that New Testament? 5,600 original manuscripts. That's a manuscript that was based in, within the 100-year period after Jesus' death, 5,600. That tells any other book, any other book it cannot even come close to that. Homer's Iliad. Um, which, if you don't know what Homer's Iliad is, that means you didn't pay attention in eighth grade English class, all right? Uh, any English teachers out there, you can thank me. I paid attention, all right? And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, the, the Bible has nine times more copies. There are less than a 1,000 of Homer's Iliad. 5,600 original manuscripts. The historicity of Scripture is important. The historicity of Jesus is important because it helps us to understand who Jesus is. But God's Word is going to... God's Word is going to unpack it even deeper. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about what God's Word says about who Jesus is. You know, the gospel Matt shared with us last week means the good news, right? And there's four gospels shared in that New Testament that we just talked about, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four guys who wrote from four different perspectives about who Jesus was, but all of their perspectives line up with one another. That's important, right? Just like if I wrote a story and one of you wrote a story and another of you wrote a story, we would all write a little bit differently, but... All the accounts still line up with one another. We're going to look at the Gospel of John this morning. So if you want to turn over to John chapter 1, it's on page 860 in the Bibles in front of you. And we are going to look at what, what John unpacks for us. Now, John was one of um, Jesus' closest companions. And uh, John wrote a very emotional and passionate uh, uh, telling of the Gospel of Jesus' life. And how Jesus' life can change our life. He opens up in chapter 1 with this poetic um, introduction where it talks about Jesus being the word of God. Remember, we looked at this last week, right? Jesus is the word of God or the Greek term, the logos, right? That's what Matt shared with us. The logos is that driving force 
We talked about the Logos being the force, right? That Jesus is the force behind it all. And then John records this interaction there after that of another man by the name of John as well. So we got John the author, but then you have John the Baptist. And he's talking about John the Baptist in the scene. John the Baptist is the precursor to Jesus. He is the one that, as the scripture says, came preparing the way of the Lord. John the Baptist is the appetizer to the main dish, that is, Jesus. And so John the Baptist is on the scene. Verse 26 of chapter 1 says this, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know, baptism was not anything new in Jesus' day. Uh, typically, uh, uh, somebody that was of the Gentile background, Gentile, somebody that wasn't, Jew, uh, wasn't a Jew, if they were to convert to Judaism, they would have been baptized as a symbol of being washed clean. But John's not talking about this. He's saying all. He's saying Jews and Gentiles, you should take this step of baptism, that you should prepare your heart, prepare yourself for the coming Messiah. And then Jesus enters the scene. And here's what John has to say about Jesus in verse 29 of chapter 1. It says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those are profound words. The Lamb is this meek and mild animal that had long been at the center of the sacrificial system of the Jewish faith. So as John the Baptist says this, and as John the author records this, it's clear that any Jew would have quickly drawn two connections. They would have quickly drawn the connection to the Passover lamb. You guys remember the Passover, right? That's, that's what took place when uh, the Israelite people were being held captive in Egypt, right? And, and God provides a leader by the name of Moses that leads them out. If you don't know this story, maybe you Maybe you remember a movie called The Prince of Egypt uh, from Disney. Like, that was the telling of this story, just so you know. Um, I'll give you a little background. Go watch it tonight. I think it's on uh, Disney+. Plus. There's a plug for Disney+, Plus right there. Uh, not at all. Um, so, uh, uh, but, but here's this story, right? So they're held, in, they're held in captivity. Moses comes, and these, these ten plagues happen, right? And these ten plagues, after plague, after plague, after plague, what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart, and he won't let the people go. I think it's a reminder to us that a hard heart can keep us from the goodness of God, can it? And uh, so, so Moses uh, is, is, is coming, he's presenting, these plagues are going to happen, and they get to the very last plague, and that's the plague of death. And it says it like this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. It says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood, now this is the blood of a lamb that was supposed to be smeared on the doorframe of the house of anybody that was an Israelite. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so this Passover happens, the, all the Egyptian people lost their firstborn, and, and the, the Israelites don't, and they eventually get out, um, and they are let out of their captivity. And then this celebration begins to happen of those Jews. It's called the Passover, and Jews to this day still celebrate the Passover, and that's a reminder of the Passover lamb, the blood that was smeared on that doorframe, and how God passed over them and didn't take their firstborn son. 
Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only would they have been reminded of that, they would have been reminded of the daily sacrifice that took place in the temple. Every single morning, every single evening, a lamb was slaughtered. Every single morning and every single evening, an innocent lamb was given for the sins of God's people. That's the, the practice that took place day after day. Now, in our American culture, we, we would just like, you know, animal activists would have a cow over this, no pun intended, right? Um, but we do understand the concept of payment and restitution, don't we? And that's what's happening here. There's payment that is due, and this is what the payment was. Mankind had sinned, and payment was due for those sins. So this daily sacrifice, like all others, was simply there, I believe, to point us towards the ultimate sacrifice that was Jesus. In fact, at the time that Jesus died on the cross, that was the time that the evening sacrifice of that lamb should have been taken place. Ravi Zacharias, um, who is an author and teacher, says this. He says, the cross proves that sin is not trivial, that we are valuable, and that forgiveness is possible. Thus, John the Baptist's words of, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world have massive significance. There's two other things I want you to catch here. First, I want you to catch it, this idea of takes away. This is this continual act, this continual process. If you get back into the original language, it, it means to carry off or to bear away, to take upon oneself, to remove. But it's continually taking place. That Jesus is continually doing this. And then it says this as well, right? He takes away the sins of the world. Notice it does not say he takes away the sins of a certain elected few or a chosen people. No, it says he takes away the sins of the world. Reminder to us of what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says. God wants everyone to be saved and to know the whole truth. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus came to this earth to give us life, to die on the cross, and to give of his blood the perfect Lamb of God. But what does that mean? What does the blood of the Lamb actually mean for us? You know, I heard a story of a, of a father and a son, and the story goes that dad had his son out, and they were, they were going hiking, it was something they liked to do, and the little boy was just doing what little boys do, right? Climbing up every little rock and jumping off into the puddles and you know, just having fun as they, they hiked. And then suddenly the dad heard the son say, hey, dad, catch. And as he turned around, his son was in midair, like pummeling himself towards his his dad, his dad said it was like a circus act trying to catch his son, and he, he finally got a hold of him, got him to the ground, and, and he sat him down, and he said, said to the little boy, he said, why did you do this? The little boy looked at him, and he said, because you're my dad, because I trust you, because you're my dad. That's the relationship that God has always intended for us to have with him, of complete trust, complete faith in him, but sin broke that relationship. Sin has made a dividing line, and so when we jump off the cliff, well, guess what? We're headed to a pretty dark pit of destruction. But be, because of Jesus, because of the blood of the Lamb, we have now been brought back into right relationship with God. You see, the blood of the Lamb provides payment. You heard me say the importance of the payment that was taking place, payment and restitution idea, right? It is finished. Those are the last words that Jesus said on the cross, Actually, the uh, original Greek language for that word is tetelestai. That word was commonly used in daily language in the Greek world, right? When a servant completed a difficult task for his master, 
He would go to his master and he would look the master in the eye and he would say, Tetelestai. He would say, it is finished. I did the work. I got through the difficulties. It is finished. I'm done with it. When a merchant had a, uh, a payment that was due and they had had this thing happen in the marketplace and money had been handed over to that merchant, he would say to Telesite, the deal has been finished, complete. The price has been paid in full. When an artist had finished a painting or a sculpture and they stepped back and they looked at their artwork, they would say to Telesite, it is finished. There's nothing more that I can do to make this piece of art better. The Greek word of Telesite, when translated back into this Hebrew language, was commonly the term used day after day when that lamb was sacrificed in the sacrificial system. To Telesai, it is finished. And those were the last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It's been paid in full. The payment has been taken care of. It has been atoned for. You know, in 1 Peter, it's recorded like this. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's through the death of Jesus on the cross that our sins have been atoned for. That is the foundation of the Christian faith. But here's the deal. Oftentimes, we limit the blood of Jesus to this. We believe that all the blood of Jesus is is a get-out-of-hell-free card for us. And when we do that, we, we, we rob God of his grandeur. God has so much more to give us through the blood of Jesus. You know, childbirthing process has changed a lot through the years. My wife and I just welcomed our fourth child a couple weeks ago. This is uh, Eva, Laura, Nave. She's, uh, she's our fourth. My wife's a... a, a uh, she's just a, a champ. Thank you, women, for birthing children. I'm glad I don't have to do that. Um, and, uh, man, I tell you, she, she did great. And we welcomed our fourth child in. But we were sitting around the hospital room with a parent and grandparent in the room. And we were talking about uh, kind of how things have changed through the years. And if you had a child about 70 years ago, um, you likely birthed that child. And immediately after the child was born, they would have taken the child, put him in a nursery, taken mom, and mom would have been away from the child, sometimes for days at a time. Uh, Grandma told us she had been away three days before she actually saw her kids. Um, And so three days, they're away from child, then they're they're reunited, mom's feeling healthier and well. Um, Now, if you had a child about 50 years ago, it it was a little bit different, right? They took the child, they wanted to take pictures back then, like take a picture, identity purposes. They'd give the child a bath. They would have mom go from, you know, labor delivery to postpartum and, and all that stuff. And then, then they would reunite. Mom would have her for an hour or two, and they'd take her back to the nursery. Mom would have her an hour or two. Nowadays, they're like, you keep the kid. We're not doing any work, right? Uh, no, not, nurses, I'm not saying that. My mom's a nurse, all right? So don't, don't pull, I'm not saying that. Uh, no, no, they, 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 they say as soon as that child's born, they want that child to go into the arms of the mom. Actually, there's a love hormone called oxytocin that's uh, given out from the mom, and that, that does all kinds of things that are good for mom and for baby. And uh, it's so important, not only for mom, but for dad. They even talk about the importance of dad experience that for bonding reasons, scientifically proven. A child needs the presence of their mom and dad in their life from the moment they are born and then the moments to follow. And that's what God wants with us. He wants us to experience his presence. Not only does he, does the blood of the lamb give us the payment, but he gives us God's presence. Remember we talked briefly about that sacrificial system and all the stringent things that had to go into that? You know, the high priest, 
There was only one that could go into this place called the Holy of Holies. He could only do that once a year. That was where the presence of God was said to have dwelt. And, well, because if he had done anything wrong or he had done anything that was not right inside of the sacrifices or himself was somehow um, was not proven to be clean in that moment, um, they would tie a rope to the high priest's foot. And so if he dropped dead while he was in the Holy of Holies, they could drag his dead body out of the the Holy of Holies. Like, this system was broken. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. Hebrews 10, verses 3 and 4 says this, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of the sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, right? This system was broken. The, the sacrificial system was not working, right? Because it was just a reminder that we are sinners time and time and time again. Verse 10, though, goes on of Hebrews, says this, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. That Jesus' blood paid the payment once and for all. And because of that, listen to what verse 19 says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter in the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You know what that's saying? It's saying that by the blood of the Lamb, that is Jesus, that we can now approach the God of this universe and all of his splendor and all of his holiness with confidence. With confidence, we can go into his presence. Not by our own confidence, but by the confidence that comes through Jesus. That telesai, right, that we talked about, that it is finished, that it's, it's been, the payment has been paid, and now we can enter into God's presence. Actually, we're told that 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 presence now dwells within us. Do you know that uh, when Jesus died, uh, history records for us that the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, that that high priest was only allowed to go, the temple curtain tore from top to bottom. That was a representation that God's presence was now going to be unleashed and freed and now could live within us that we are promised at our baptism, right? That we are forgiven our sins and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we can have the presence of God in our life. And when we have the presence of God in our life, you know what that brings about for us? It brings peace. Peace like you have never understood before until you've experienced the peace that God can give you. You know, when I was a child, my dad had this distinct smell about him. Dad, if you're watching, it was a good smell, I promise, all right? Good smell. Um, but he had this distinct smell, and uh, I remember as a kid, if dad was maybe gone for uh, a long night at work or had to have a go on a trip, I remember going into my mom and dad's room and crawling up on the bed, laying my head on my dad's pillow to smell that smell. And there was a sense of calmness that came with that smell, a sense of just like security um, that you should have when you have a good father. And uh, I, a couple months back, dad gave me a bag full of t-shirts. He said, hey, I got some old t-shirts. If you want some of them, you can use them for rags or wear them, whatever you want. I uh, handed them to me and I got them home that night and I pulled one of them out and put it on. And it was like that smell just hit me. I was reminded of uh, the dependency that I had on a father, uh, the dependency of, uh, of knowing my dad was taking care of me and his presence was there. And there was a sense of peace, even as an adult, that kind of just sat over me. God wants that type of peace for us in our life. That's what Romans chapter 5 says the blood of the Lamb gives us. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, By faith we have been made acceptable to God, and now because of our Lord Jesus Christ we live at peace with God. It continues on in verse 9. It says, but there is more. Now that God has accepted us because of Christ's because Christ sacrificed his life's blood, we will also be kept safe from God's anger. Even when we were enemies, he made peace with us because his son died for us. Yet something even greater than friendship is ours. Now that we are at peace with God, we will be saved by his son's life. 
You see, peace in God is, uh, is different than just this idea of worldly peace. Jesus' blood makes, makes peace with God because we've been by nature at war with God for all too long because of our sinfulness. But when we have the peace of God, it's a peace that says even amidst the troubles, because the world's going to throw problems at you. You're going to have difficulty. I'm going to have peace. When you're anxious and overwhelmed and you're stressed out, the scripture says that we can present our request to God. And what's it say? He'll give us a peace that surpasses understanding. When chaos is all around us, that we can, we can lean into the Lord. We can experience his presence and we can be at peace amidst the chaos. That's because God's power is at work, which is the fourth thing that the blood gives us. It gives us God's power. Now, let me ask you this. Has anybody ever prayed a prayer like this? God, thank you so much for who you are. God, if you'll help me win the lottery, I got my ticket right here. Uh, nobody wants to admit that they prayed that prayer. I'm sure a few of you have, though. Um, and, uh, you know, right, help me win the lottery. God doesn't need you to win the lottery to change the world. You know that? Actually, in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says this. And they conquered him, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Just so you know this, they is Christ's followers, and him is the dragon, which is a metaphor for Satan and the world system. They overcame, they conquered Satan with two things, right? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Now think about it. Our movement started in 33 AD. That's a long time ago, just so you guys know, right? That's a long time ago. 33 AD, the, these people are huddled in this upper room, and then they're empowered by the Spirit, right? They're empowered by God's Spirit working in them, and, and they start telling other people about them. And now today, one out of every three people would say that they are a Christian. God has empowered us. So what's the world throwing at you? I mean, what problems are on your plate right now? Is the addiction wrecking your life and you're not sure how you're going to get through it? Why don't you trust God? Be empowered by God to help you walk through it. It's still going to be a journey, but God's going to give you the power that you need. Is the depression overwhelming you? And you feel like, I don't know what to do every day. I just seem down and overwhelmed. And God is saying, let me just walk with you amidst this. You know, all those relationships that we've talked about over the last month or so, and you've got a relationship, do you feel like you've got a relationship that you're just like, I don't think it can be fixed? God's saying, let me be a part of that mending and that process. The chronic pain that just constantly seems to beat you down and make you feel worn out and weary. And God is saying, let me be the strength that you need to just get through the day and to honor me with your day. Maybe it's abuse of some sort that seems to slowly beat you. And God's saying, would you just lean into me and allow me to protect you? Romans chapter 8 verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, God is what we need for all of our needs. God is walking with us, and his love is on full display when he empowers us. You know, actually, it says that the empowered church of God, well, that, that, the, that the gates of hell will not even prevail against that, that we're going to be on the offense, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the empowered church of God. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb provides so much more than just payment. And the last thing it is, is this. It's, it's protection. You know, there's a passage in Psalm 23 that we hear King David writing this psalm. It's oftentimes read at funerals. I, I want to read it to you. It says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, the scripture says. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 5 says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, often we read that passage of scripture at a funeral or in a graveside service. But can I just tell you this? David wasn't talking a Talking, he wasn't writing a psalm of, of death. He was writing a psalm of, of life. He was talking about being shepherded by God amidst the difficulties that are this life. And here's what I love. The scripture tells us that the, the lamb becomes the shepherd. This was like a total aha moment for me this week as I did my study. Revelation 7 verse 17 says, says this, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Someday the eastern sky is going to split. And someday every knee will bow before God and proclaim that he is the lamb of God. Every neighbor, every friend, every coworker, every boss, every terrorist, every, every president, every government official, every friend of yours, every single person will kneel before God and say that he, he truly is the lamb of God. And then Jesus, that lamb, will become the shepherd and he will usher in his flock those that have trusted him into the presence of God. You see, the lamb, the lamb doesn't just provide payment. It provides God's presence, his peace, his power, and his protection in our life. But, but what's that mean for us? It means we have to understand how we are going to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Because how you answer that question determines a lot about who you are and what you do with your life. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was verse 29. If you skip over a few verses into verse 35, it continues on with this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. He says it again, right? And then it says this. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Like these disciples of John, no longer. Now we're disciples of Jesus. If he's the Lamb of God, I want to follow after him. You know, it's a decision that we have to make every single day. Who do we say Jesus is? I decided 20 years ago to follow Christ with my life. But guess what? i got to decide right now, right now in this moment to follow him as well. I'm going to have to decide it tomorrow morning, just like you're going to have to decide who you say Jesus is tomorrow. And I think for some of us, like, we've been in faith for years. Like, we've known Christ as the Lord of our life for years. But for some reason or another, we've gotten out of the habit of recognizing that every single day, moment after moment, day after day, saying, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And if he's the Lamb of God, then I can trust him that he has paid the full payment. You stop questioning your salvation. Would you just trust that it's been complete and done? It is the ultimate sacrifice is atoned for your sins. You don't have to worry about it anymore, right? That I can trust him 
for that. And because of that, I can step into God's presence with confidence. That's a powerful thing, right? And if I can step into his presence with confidence, that means I can be at peace. Would you just stop worrying and being stressed out about all the things that you feel like you're stressed out about? And you can just say, God, I'm handing it over to you because you're there with me. And you know what? How am I going to get through the next day? He's going to give me the power that I need to get through the next day. So I'm just going to trust that he's going to get me through the next day. And someday he's going to usher me into the presence of God for all eternity where there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain, that I will get to stand before God and I will get to say, not because of what I've done, but because of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus, I can, I can trust that I have salvation and I get to spend eternity with you, Lord. That's the promise that we have in Christ. And I think so often we just, we simply, we regulate God to this get out of hell free card, just maybe payment. We don't understand that God's walking with us every single day by the blood of Jesus. But you have to answer that question for yourself. Who do you say Jesus is?